You know, they tell you that it's okay to sometimes answer a question with, I don't know. Like if someone asks you a question, you don't have to know. And they tell leaders and pastors and people like this sometimes um, specifically that we don't need to be experts at everything that people find interesting or that we should find interesting. Um, and it's okay to admit when we don't know something. I like that humble approach, um, and I hope to uh, exhibit it at times. And sometimes the answer to a frequently asked question is, I don't know. We're trying to answer frequently asked questions. And this whole season is devoted to questions that you have. So if you have any questions that you want us to talk about, let me know. And I can, we can put it in the schedule, if you will. The schedule is still subject to change. Um, everything's provisional. Sometimes I don't know is a good enough answer. There are things that you'll never know. Or things that, you, for some of you, depending on how you see the future, you might say, this is a question I'm going to ask God when I get to heaven. As if you know that you'll have an opportunity to ask questions in heaven. Which is just an interesting thing to say. And sometimes there isn't any hope for finding out something. But sometimes there is, right? And this is a question that I still answer as I don't know. But I've put some thought into it. I'm particularly interested in it. Um, it might be something that I've thought about more than many other subjects. So I, what I want to do is I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to try to give you my approach to it. Um, and then we'll see if you have something back. This is, um, I think it's fair to say this is a little bit more intellectual than usual. So try to track with me if you can. And I know some of you are thinking, you never give me a warning when it's intellectual before. So you might be a little bit like, where is he going to go? I don't think it's going to be that bad. but. This is the question I'm working with today, or we're working with. Should we be interested in politics? Is it wrong to collect power? Have you thought about this before? Do you have some ideas about the answer to this question? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with two claims, um, and then we'll go from there. I think Christians are interested in this question because it isn't so easy to answer. But two claims that I'm going to start with complicate it. The first claim is that Christians should participate in making the world a better place. That's the first idea, the first truth that I have. Now, you might disagree with that, you might not. I think it's manifestly in the scripture and in the Gospels. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' main teaching, is full of ways to enact the Gospel in practical ways, thereby making the world better. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. There's something tangible and something practical that our faith should offer. There is a, uh, a fruit that should come of it. And if it's a good fruit, it should make the world better. Right? That's the idea that I have here. That's the claim I'm making. To add to this claim, I actually think Christians should be, in a sense, cultural leaders. And we saw glimpses of this in many times during history. Ones that progress the whole of society. Ones that uh, reinvigorate a moral conversation. Too often Christians spend their time using their platform and powers to hold back society as what it was. They can serve what used to be. But I think we need to do this because we set the tone for how progress is being made. I'm interested in that. And I think that Jesus is too. We don't do it for power or for influence, but because we have discerned the Holy Spirit and think the sanctifying Holy Spirit can sanctify the whole world. 
We do it because we serve Jesus, who is reconciling everything to himself. We do it as vessels of God, agents of God in a foreign world. That's the idea that I'm working with. Yo, Pear, what's up? A world that's becoming in touch with its out-of-placeness. And I actually think that this world that we have is being restored. You know, we're not doing it um, to end up in some distant land on a cloud where, where, we, end when, where we go when we perish. This is the, the palpable improvement that enacting the gospel and sharing the gospel in this world is that the alleviation of suffering is about making it better and about bringing eternity here, right? God's will on earth as it is in heaven. It's happening right now in reality. Christians need to palpably improve their environment or I'm not sure the gospel's real. You know, we're not just reactionary people but proactive ones that change the world and make it better. The gospel needs to have real, tangible changes to the world and the people living it for it to be authentic. And Christians who model that will have a universal gospel that can be applied in many contexts throughout history, freely expressing the incarnational love of Jesus. Alright, so that's the first claim that I'm working with in this question that we're answering about whether Christians should be involved in politics and how much power we should collect. We should make the world a better place. The second claim, in my opinion, complicates it. And this is, the, this is the biggest claim, because I think that in general people agree. I think only some Christians would say we shouldn't make the world a better place. Or that we can't, maybe. I don't think most people would say we should make it a worse place. I don't think that's common. Right? I don't, I don't think anyone thinks that. Um, but some people might say we shouldn't be involved. This one is a little bit more debatable. Political power is inherently violent, and, 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 and then what goes along with that is that Christians shouldn't be violent. That's a big claim. Those are two claims that I'm... A claim there that conflicts with the first one, but not readily, and we'll get to why it conflicts later. All right, many Christian philosophers and theologians have discussed this, and I'll give you a bibliography at the end if you want to read more. And I actually hope you do. You know, I'm just going to be honest with you. Not everything I recommend is useful. <laughs> Maybe I should change that. But some of it is. Because um, some of you have these questions. But I'm going to quote one philosopher today. French guy, Jacques Ellul. Anyone ever hear this name before? Okay, he wrote a book called... Uh, well, the book I'm quoting is uh, Violence. Um, he's a very, very interesting thinker. And he says, every state is founded on violence and cannot maintain itself save by and through violence. Now, he would come more from uh, the anarchist Christian camp. So he isn't even doing our old Anabaptist style thing. He's a little bit, he's coming from a whole different, not a whole different zone, but a different zone anyway. And he'll go on to say in the book, how does the government stay in power? By violence and through violence. The state uses violence against expired regimes it domestically uses it to control populations through law, through emergency law. Violence is everywhere, according to Alul, in the states. The state has a monopoly on violence, and that's the only way it can protect its citizens from other forms of violence. He extends the argument from, being this, from the state being inherently violent to the sole means available to those in power 
to claim their rights. That, that violence exists for that reason. And he says Jesus knew how it worked too. You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and the great ones are tyrants over them is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 20. Alul argues that Jesus is not describing monarchs and controllers of wealth, but anyone who is in political leadership. There's no way for someone to stay in power except through violence. Now this is, this is a big claim he's making. Okay? And I'm not even saying like I totally am down with it, but I'm, 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 I want, I'm creating a conflict so that we can see why this question is difficult. He describes the law of violence this way. Continuous, therefore there's no escaping it. Reciprocal, so it begets more violence. The same as it is impossible, he says, to distinguish between justified and unjustified violence, between violence that liberates and violence that enslaves. Big claim. For, he says, the method of falsehood, it only begets more violence and nothing else. And it has made violence the law of power. It just keeps perpetuating itself. You'll never end the violence through violence. And it's self-justifying, as if whoever is executing it is always seeking to justify him or herself. Alul describes violence as so heinous that the proponents of it must argue for its morality because its immorality is so plain. And then he says violence and hatred always go together. This is a big claim. Big whole idea. Um, and he would say every time someone needs to be violent for the sake of their own justice, the church failed. And he actually lists, if memory serves me, he refers to the civil rights movement in the United States and the violence that was connected to certain segments of it and doesn't find fault with um, black people for committing it. And in fact, names the church at large, regardless of race, as, um, as culpable for it. You, you didn't get there soon enough and now you're going to criticize them. So he has a whole different idea about how this is working. And it's a short little book you could read on the beach if you want. In fact, I read it on a beach in my recollection. Maybe that's why I thought that. So he's making a bold claim. The state is fundamentally violent. So why are these two claims in conflict? Because we've been convinced that the most effective way to change the world is through the state and the market. That's another big claim I'm making. The church has abdicated too much, uh, too, too much moral responsibility to the state and the market. A guy named Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament theologian, Let's say we've lost our imagination. In that, the only ways we can imagine the world being better are, are through political and economic means. And Daniel Bell has more to say about this. He is going to argue, Daniel Bell wrote a book called The Economy of Desire. He is going to argue that we can't even imagine another possibility beyond the state as the chief social actor. Those are the two claims I was working with, and here's Daniel Bell. Can you see this? When you ponder the big problems that confront humanity and society, like poverty or disease or environmental degradation or even the economic crisis, inevitably where does your thinking turn? To the state and the proper policies it should enact. You do not think first and foremost, what should the church do? Or what should General Motors do? Instead, you think about governmental policies in action. It is a habit of the mind that is deeply ingrained. 
That's the trouble with the passive voice, by the way, in your writing. That statement is passive, right? It's a habit of mind that is deeply ingrained. It needs a subject. It needs a, the sentence needs a subject. Who is ingraining? Right? I'm interested. I, I'm, I have an idea about that. But the passive voice can protect you from that, if you want. Sorry, that's too specific. That's what, that's, I, I often say things I say are too specific, don't I? We are used to thinking of the state as the chief social actor. Even those who espouse the currently popular view that the state should have a smaller economic footprint do not really relinquish politics as statecraft insofar as they don't really want the state to surrender its supervisory control of society. Rather, they want it to enforce policies that protect and preserve the market. Interesting, interesting little paragraph there from Daniel Bell. This whole book is a, is a, is a vehement criticism, not of the state, but of the market. Right, that's what he's going to really nail in the book. But he has an interesting part, chapter one here, where he talks about the chief social actor. And many contextual theologians, um, at least in my reading, um, don't imagine the state being something that's redeemed. Um, they they see it as a symbol of dominant power structure, and cons and, and they and they think of it as the tool of the dominator that you can't separate the, the oppressive power structures from the state because they enact them, right? And so uh, black liberationists, for example, aren't talking about um, electing the right people or something like that, right? That would be too, that would be too small. They're thinking about something bigger than that. Um, so if Christians are to change the world, but the ways we're supposed to change the world are violent, little impasse there, conflict. If the ways that our mind have been colonized, has been colonized to imagine how to change the world, how do we do our, our main work as Christians? As much as the gospel tells us to be agents of change, it also warns us about participating in worldly ways to accomplish it. Two examples from Paul here. In Romans 12, he says, don't conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by renewing your mind. To the Philippians, he says, the peace of God surpasses understanding. So guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I, I love the, the, the idea of guarding your mind and your heart from whatever kind of invaders are coming to it to colonize it, to captivate your imagination, to take it away from God. But the New Testament writers don't answer the question very explicitly for a number of reasons. We know we should change the world, but they seem to guard against using methods of the world. But we end up being captivated by those methods anyway, and our minds have been colonized, in a sense, by them, as I was saying. And I don't think the political power, um, collecting political power was very possible in the Roman Empire, especially the random Christians that were, that were assembling. They were generally trying to keep away from the political power killing them. They weren't really trying to collect it. So the New Testament writers might not be trying to answer this question and may not even possibly, uh, maybe can't even really answer it. They don't live in a liberal democracy like the United States, so it's complicated. right? We have a live question here because of how we participate. Uh, Jesus did have a few hypothetical opportunities to collect power, and he seemed to avoid it. His ministry begins with the temptation. The tempter comes to tempt him in the desert. Turned his stone into bread, he said. That's like economic power. You can become the ruler of the land. Political power. 
he actually asks him to, f to abdicate some of his own religious authority to him and he says, bow down and worship me. So there's some religious power there too. He doesn't participate really in any of that and considers it wrong. You know, for Jesus, taking any of that power from God is the problem. You know. And in a moment of counter-revolution, Jesus submits to dying on the cross. He had disciples that were not unlike my friends. Simon the Zealot probably had like a dagger like that big on him, ready to like, you know, jab a Roman centurion should any problem happen. What he needed to use, his little uh, uh, sidearm, if you will, right? There was, he had a, the Zealot had a tendency to do, or to, or to jab Matthew in case Matthew was doing something barbaric. Because Matthew's the tax collector, right? Coming from the other, you know, he has his own, by the way, he had his own weapon you know, uh, in order to collect his taxes, right? And, and we know Peter was armed because he used his sword. Apparently he was just walking around with a sword. And this moment, this great moment when he's in the garden and he's praying, Jesus is pleading, God, take this from me. I don't want to die this way. I'm like 33. This is pretty untimely. And I think when Jesus is saying, take this cup from me, it's take the death from me and let me, let, me, let me do what every single instinct that I have is to do, which is to kill these Romans that are coming after me. Look, Peter has a sword too, and he cuts off Malchus's ear. And then, of course, Jesus says, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Right? I think Jesus is resisting his own instinct to fight back. The text isn't very clear about that. So let's just be honest, okay? I'm speculating on what's happening in Jesus' mind in that moment. We don't know. You know, and we might never know. So I don't think he was very interested in building too much political power. But he does charge us with the commission to make disciples, to love God, love each other. He wants us to enact change in the world. He tells us to feed and care for the least of these. The gospel is full of messages to do good in the world and to make it better. Mary in the Magnificat, after the Annunciation, says, um, give the poor good things, send the rich away empty, fill the valleys, lower the mountains. The Old Testament prophets are full of this kind of imagery. It's clear there's a social action related to the gospel. So it's not surprising that shortly after the early period, Christianity uh, underwent imperial sponsorship, if you will. Now that's a very... Uh, this is the kind of thing you'd hear around Circle of Hope. In the Reformation, you had uh, Martin Luther who wanted to bring things back to about uh, Thomas Aquinas. And then you had uh, John Calvin who wanted to bring things back all the way to Augustine. Then you had people like us that wanted to bring it back before Constantine, right? That's, 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 that's our heyday. Um, so that's why I would say imperial sponsorship, right? Because the state church and I don't always get along. And so the state church, the line between state and church, became so merged in Europe, and it still is in some cases, that the above question isn't even really rational. It's hard to answer. So for Americans, it's much more complicated because we don't even think there should be really a Christian state. We generally like our liberal democracy, and even the most cynical of us are wondering whether the state can be redeemed at all. But we're faced with trouble around us and suffering around us, and we're not very well equipped to deal with it. We see injustice all around us, and the world is a hotbed of suffering. And even the best efforts of the church still uh, pale in the comparison of the huge power of the government.
you know, not only to harm, but to heal, potentially. Every day is a new list of headlines that troubles us. Circle of Hope is known for its activism, even. So we have some problems, you know. Just, just to give you an idea. And I, not, to, not, to, not to depress you. 71% of carbon emissions come from corporations. There's almost nothing that you can do individually to stop climate change as, a, as, a, as an individual. Your, your recycling the extra can does like literally nothing. It might make you feel good, but the polar bears will still eat your children. You know, that's still, that's still coming. That's always my image for some reason. Polar bears descending on Philadelphia eating us. Well, something's going to happen like that, right? Doesn't this, you don't think they're going to come down? They're going to eat some kids, okay? It's, it's happening, okay? I've written the apocalyptic movie about this. I guess we'll flood, right? That's what they say. It's not, it's not polar, polar bear war. So sorry about your recycling. This is a bigger problem. So you might feel so limited, too, right? Even the 20% you share in the common fund that's supposed, to, that's supposed to help redistribute the wealth, the money that we share together, you know, it's still small. And I don't want to um, diminish that too much, but we're up against some big forces, and our individual effort isn't substantial enough to end the horror that we see around us so often. So we're ill-equipped, even if we're willing. So then how do we engage the state? I just don't think it's totally practical to be very ideological about saying the state is inherently violent, the church is fundamentally nonviolent, so we can't interact at all, right? If we're to keep with our convictions, we need to be a peaceable people. I think that. But that, I don't think that means no engagement at all. For if we're on the side of the oppressed, some political action with the state could be necessary and justified. You know, the Gospels are also have some moments where, you know, Paul, for example, uh, uses his Roman citizenship to protect, to protect himself. I agree with Alul that when we engage in those actions, we're reforming an inherently violent system and fall into the trap that Bell warned about, considering the state the chief social actor. I kind of say a little prayer of repentance every time I vote, because I still do it, but like, I don't know ab about it, you know. And I, 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 I uh, sometimes admit that my action could definitely be sinful, if you will, but it doesn't stop me from doing it, because what saves me isn't my perfection anyway. So it makes some sense to engage in political activity, in my mind, even to vote. But we can't forget that the reason that that's the case is because the church and Christians have abdicated a lot of their own agency to the state. I think we need to be careful if we ever think that a new moral elite which guides us from the top, can replace the sovereign reign of Jesus in our service to him. And when we do, we're entering idolatrous and dangerous water. Our salvation isn't in the aristocrats who are in charge, but in the saving grace of Jesus. Some political advocacy, however pure it might be, could be occasionally appropriate. But the peaceable community we're trying to form, even right here in Circle of Hope, needs to triumph. Rather than trying to reform the inherently violent system, we might repent that Christians arrived too late to the scene and in some cases aided and abetted its formation.
So stand with the oppressed and create communities for oppressed people to thrive in. And the hope of the world isn't in is in the incarnation of Jesus as it expresses itself through the body. And all our alternative communities of faith provide opportunity for peace and justice. And that opportunity is based on whom we're related to. And I don't think it's one that the church, that the state or the market can ever uh, rival. You know, we're creating a divine economy. Um, an upside-down community, as another author said. That's what we're trying to do in Circle of Hope. So we have a little antidote, a little expression. It's a symbol of what the world could be like, even if it isn't the chief tool we use to change it in every circumstance, because in many cases it's largely impractical. So, yeah, I don't really know. That was, that was, that was what I was working with. That's the I don't know answer. Um, but maybe you can add some stuff. And I've written more on this. I've posted a full article on, on my blog if you're interested in reading it. Um, this is the title of it. And I'll send it to you if you want. And there's a bibliography at the end if you want to see uh, various other books about this. So that's it for me. Let's say a prayer and do some talk back, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for being here, for being present, for your faithfulness among us. Keep showing us new and creative ways to enact the gospel, to enact your will, in tricky times to do it. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.